you're on the hook now. Yeah, right there, man. Right there. Hey, good morning to you. Really glad to be sharing with you this morning. Glad to dance with you. Uh, that's one of my uh, most uh, feared public activities, dancing in public or singing in public. I have a terrible singing voice. I'll have to tell you a story about that some other time, but thanks for that. Thanks for opening that up, that little wound right there. <laughs> but hey, I have enjoyed uh, this sermon series a lot. Can you dig it? Groovy truths about God and about you. And I'm excited to add my voice to the conversation this morning. And I've really had a great summer so far. I hope that you have too. I got to take a little vacation already this summer, a little trip with my oldest daughter. We went to New York City, which is just a fun little thing, just a couple of days, but we had a great time. And, you know, if you go to New York, there's a few things that you just have to see, right? Uh, 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 Some icons of the city. And when you think of New York, you think about this right here, Statue of Liberty, right? And my daughter, she also went to Paris. I didn't get to go with her there, but she went to Paris, and uh, there's one icon that just screams Paris. If you go to Paris, you have to see the Eiffel Tower, of course. I mean, lots of places have icons like this. Of course, Seattle has the Space Needle, and even here in Walla Walla, we have our own icon of sorts, right? Marcus Whitman, you thought it was going to be a picture of Trinity there, probably. Marcus Whitman. But, but you know, these, these buildings, they're not the whole city. There's more to New York than just the Statue of Liberty. There's more to Walla Walla than just one building. But, but these icons, they evoke certain uh, feelings, certain uh, ideas that we associate with the place. They, they tell us something about the true nature of the place. And, and that's really what an icon does. It, it captures just the, the essence of a place or a thing. And, and there's a bit of an icon that I think encapsulates this sermon series, a particular passage that serves as, as something of an icon, representing the, the essence of what we're really trying to accomplish this series. And I'm talking about a passage we call the Great Commandment. Uh, if somebody asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment of all time? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So, so all the Old Testament teaching hangs on these two commands. Love God fully and love your neighbor. That's the, the summary, the icon, if you will, of the entire Old Testament. It's a, it's a reflection of God and what's most important to him. And, and this summer, as we explore several key doctrines, our desire is that as we understand these doctrines, we're going to learn what it really means to obey God, to love him fully and love other people in this way. I mean, if these commands are so significant to Jesus, then we should really pay attention to them ourselves. What does it mean to love God with all, all our heart and our soul and our mind? We're going to explore that in, uh, in some different ways this summer, but one of those ways is just learning about him, learning key doctrines that give us that fuel to love God more fully, and then put those things into practice. And so, so this morning, we're going to learn to love God more fully by learning something about ourselves. And in the process, we're going to find out how to put this critical doctrine into place. And, and we're going to start with an icon, with a, uh, an image or, or a moment, really, that's, that just encapsulates this particular doctrine we're going to talk about this morning. This is a, an icon of just 
radical love. Jesus has an encounter with this man and in the process gives us just a a stunning display of how God interacts with the world. So we're just going to touch on this. I've got the passage up here on the screens. Take a look with me. A man with leprosy came to him, to Jesus, and begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was cured. Now, I say this is a a stunning display of compassion because it's a huge break from the way things had been. I mean, prior to this moment, a person with leprosy or any skin disease was just exiled from the community. The person was, was unable to take part in the community life. They were considered unclean. And they had to live out away from others. In fact, the rabbis even had specific regulations about how close you could get to a person with leprosy. And it depended on how windy it was. If it was windy, you had to stay extra far away. If it was a calm day, you could get a little closer, but, but not too close. Uh, certainly nothing like what we see here. I mean, Jesus is willing to touch this person. A big break from the way things had been. And notice, the text specifically mentions that Jesus was filled with compassion. That's a really interesting word in the Greek. First of all, it's really fun to say, splanksnitsomai. But it literally, it means moved in the bowels. Jesus had so much compassion for this person, he could feel it, feel it in his gut. Gut-wrenching heartache for the condition that this person is in. Because up to this point, I mean, leprosy was basically a walking death sentence. You, 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 you couldn't get any relationships with people because people had to keep their physical distance from you. Now, you could attend a worship service, but only if you sat behind a screen so that no one could see you or accidentally touch you. So, so Jesus sees this man, and his heart, his, his guts go out to him. It's an amazing display of compassion. And now, it's possible that uh, you have a slightly different translation. If you're looking on your phone or a newer Bible, it might say something like, uh, Jesus was indignant, not Jesus had compassion. And I'm not going to get down into the weeds on why that difference is, but, but there's a few manuscripts that say indignant, which is a very similar word to splanksnitsomai. But the point is that, that Jesus had compassion. I mean, even if the text doesn't actually say that, Jesus clearly demonstrates it. He demonstrates it in three very significant ways. He's willing to heal the man, that's one, and, and he touches the man. That's a big act of compassion right there. And then finally, he, he actually heals the man. He's willing to heal him. And so Jesus demonstrates this amazing compassion towards this man, freeing him from this, this death sentence that was leprosy. And any one of these three actions would have been compassionate, but Jesus showed very radical love to this man. I mean, if he'd just been willing to talk to the man, that was more than most people would have done. Even if he'd only been willing to touch the man, that alone is an amazing act of compassion. But Jesus heals him. He gives him a whole new life, a fresh start to life. What a gift. So why would Jesus show compassion to this man? Uh, did Jesus just see him and have pity? Maybe. Did, is it because the man begged him? It's possible. But I think it was something deeper. I think Jesus responds to this man with such compassion because of something deeper. Jesus understands something about human nature that drove him to respond to this man in a way that shows God's radical love 
for the world. And I think in order for us to fully understand Jesus' compassion, in order for us to, to fully love God and love other people the way Jesus commands us, I think we need to go back to an earlier moment in Jesus' life, an earlier moment where Jesus shows compassion not just to one man, but to all people. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning, Genesis 1. That's where we're going to camp out this morning. And so I invite you to, to open your Bibles uh, to way back to the beginning, Genesis 1. And we're going to explore something foundational about humanity, a doctrine about ourselves, that once we understand it, it should result in our own love and compassion, should result in us loving God fully and loving people. So let's look at Genesis 1 together. And uh, Genesis 1 lays out a bit of a a pattern. As as God is creating the world, uh, in each case, God is making different things, and the text tells us a little pattern. And God said, and then that thing is made. And God said, and that thing is made. God said, that thing is made. Over and over, that's this pattern. God makes all kinds of things, uh, sun, moon, animals, fish, all in the same pattern. And then we get to verse 26. Let's start reading in verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So this is the account of the creation of humans. And there's some interesting observations here. First, there's a break in that pattern that we noted. It was God said, and then the thing was made. God said, and the thing was made. But here we get a break from that pattern. God stops to talk about it. Who's he talking to? I don't know. I wasn't there. But but if you were here last week, you know, we we talked about the doctrine of the Trinity. And I think uh, we don't see a fully formed picture of that here, but I do think we see the beginnings of uh, God consulting with the other members of the Trinity here, the beginnings of that doctrine we explored last week. And so so there's this break in the pattern here. Something special is happening, something unique. You know, in verse 24 and 25, God's making uh, all sorts of creatures according to their kinds. He says uh, uh, livestock, uh, creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, each according to its kind. Uh, But now when God makes humans, he makes them not just according to their own kind, not just like themselves, but he decides to make them like himself, made in God's own image. So, So humans have a certain amount of inherent dignity, and worth just because we're made in God's image. And I think that deep truth is what Jesus is ultimately responding to when he reaches out and touches that leper. He sees past the man's skin disease, past the man's loneliness and grief, and he sees the worth that God has given that man, worth that comes to every human being because we're all made in God's image. We're all like God, little icons of God, representations that illustrate something of God's grandeur and his greatness. And we're probably at least a little bit familiar with this idea, with this phrase, made in the image of God, but but what does it really mean to say that we're made in the image of God? Because 
Because stating a doctrine or just repeating a phrase and really understanding it are two different things. And, and when we talk about humans being made in the image of God, what are we really saying? What is it about God's likeness or image that we have? Uh, it's worth noting, I think, that, that God talks about it. He makes this decision to make mankind in his image. But he doesn't ever say really what that means. It doesn't indicate what that means. It's not clear exactly what part of us is made in God's image. And a lot of Bible scholars have tackled this question, trying to understand what is it about us that makes us special, makes us like God. And, and the answers are, are not, there's not a strong consensus, but there's kind of three categories. And spoiler alert, they're all three kind of unsatisfying. So we're going to just, just touch on them. But uh, the, the first possibility is that the image of God in us is, is a quality, some kind of a quality that we have, that, uh, a quality in our nature. You know, if you look at the passage it's clear that we're different from animals. We're different from anything else in creation. What makes us different is this image of God in us. We're icons of God, our, our personalities, our ability to reason, our, uh, our ability to make ethical and moral decisions, our free will, our intelligence, our, our self-consciousness. In other words, our ability to, to relate to other creatures and have an awareness of ourself in relation to those things. These are all the kinds of things that separate us from animals. And, and some scholars have determined that, that, that this must be what it means to be made in the image of God, to have that image of God in us. And uh, it's been said, no dog ever built a cathedral. In other words, animals don't have the ability to understand the spiritual world in the same way that we do as humans. And so, so it makes sense that these qualities that humans have, that nothing else has in creation, that would be that unique image of God in us. But, but at the same time, this view has some problems. Uh, it's a little bit challenging to accept all the way. If we say that some quality like intelligence, for example, is the image of God in us, then what does that say about people who are less intelligent than other people? I mean, does a child have less of the image of God in them than an adult? Or does a, a mentally disabled person have less of the image of God in them than another person? Well, that seems troubling to admit, and there's certainly nothing in the Bible that would seem to indicate that. I mean, Jesus has compassion for all kinds of people, and, and he particularly values children. So it would seem to indicate that this, this qualitative view is not quite right. Humans being made in the image of God, it must mean something else. And so that leads us to uh, the second kind of common view among scholars, what we might call the relational view. Now, some scholars, they look at this passage and they see an emphasis on God in relation to himself. He says, let us make mankind in our image. And then notice, too, he specifically mentions male and female. That's something he doesn't do with any of the other creatures. And so it would seem that maybe there's something about these relationships. That's what it means to have the image of God, that, that when we live fully into our relationships, whether it be a male and female relationship like a marriage or, or just relationships with fellow believers, that there's something about those relationships is this image of God. It reflects God more fully. And there's some validity to this opinion, and it makes some sense. You look at what's emphasized in the passage, that, that relationships are a way to reflect God. I mean, after all, God is a relationship, three in one, and so this makes some sense. But, but just like the first view, this view also has some challenges. It's a bit unsatisfying. And the challenge with this view is that in order for us to reflect the image of God, we have to be in relationship with other people. But, 
But the teaching of the Bible seems to indicate that humans have inherent worth. It's, it's in us. It's not dependent upon us having a relationship. And another question it raises is, how healthy does your relationship have to be before it really reflects the image of God? And so I think there's some, some truth here, but just like there's some truth in that first view, but there's also something else at work. And so that leads us to the third very common view. And again, I mean, the Bible's not clear on what it means to be made in the image of God. And so, so biblical scholars, they've had to do some hard thinking about this. There's not a real strong consensus, but these are the three common views. And this third view is what's been called the, the functional view. And this option, it looks at the text of Genesis 1, and it notices something. In, in verse 26... Uh, God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So see, God comes up with this idea to make humans in his image, and then he gives us a, a purpose or a function so that we could rule over God's creation. And so maybe there's a connection here that after all, I mean, you know, God, he's the ruler of the universe, and so maybe being made in his image means we get to rule this little corner of the universe. Maybe that's, that function is what it means for us to be made in the image of God. And again, I mean, this functional view, it takes a good look at the Bible text, draws conclusions from that, but this also has some challenges. It's a little bit unsatisfying because it would seem to limit the image of God in us to how useful a person is. I mean, if you're doing what God wants you to do, fulfilling that function, then you have God's image. But if you're not, does that mean you don't have that image in you? Well, that's, that's troubling to affirm because, again, it starts to, to devalue certain people. And, and it's clear that the Bible it values all human life, and, and we should value all human life. Jesus, he shows compassion to people, not for how useful they are or how good they are at fulfilling their function, but just because they're people created by God. So you can see trying to, trying to pin down what it is in us that's this image of God is really not easy, but I want to propose one more idea that I think gets to the heart of it. If you look back in Genesis 1, back to verse 16, we see that humans, we're not the only ones that are created, the only one of God's creation that has this function of, of ruling, this function of governing. In verse 16, God makes the sun and the moon, and their job is to rule or to govern. They're given that same kind of authority as humans. And throughout the Bible, this authority is referred to as God's glory. Uh, authority and glory go hand in hand, and they're very often associated with light, just like the sun and the moon. Okay, so for example, God's people, they're in the desert and they're following God, and he appears to them in a unique way. God appears to them as this pillar of fire. Uh, this, this light that was this glorious light, and, and that was their authority. Well, the people are afraid of it, and so they say they want Moses to be a mediator, that Moses would go and talk to God and then communicate back to the people. And so when Moses goes to meet with God, he comes back. The Bible tells us his face would glow with the same kind of light. He'd been exposed to God's glory, and now he radiates God's authority to the people. He reflects that authority. So Stay with me here a little bit. Okay, God has this glory, and he gives a portion of it to Moses, and Moses reflects that authority to the people. Now, 
Later on in the New Testament, the same kind of thing happens to Jesus. There's this moment when Jesus is transfigured before his disciples. They see him in his true form, and the Bible tells us his face shone like the sun. His clothes became dazzling white, as bright as a flash of lightning. He fully reflects God's glory. And later, he tells his disciples, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So throughout the Bible, God's glory and his authority, they go hand in hand, and they're very often associated with light. God gives his authority to people who will reflect his true character to the world, just as Moses did, just as Jesus did, reflecting the truth about God to the world. So so what does this all mean? Does it mean that the shinier you are, the, the more like God you are? If that's the case, we should all go bald so that we can reflect more of God's glory. And you can insert your own Pastor Brad joke right there. (laughs) But no, I I think the idea here is that God has given humans his glory, his authority, the, the ability to reflect something about who God is. Just as God made the sun and the moon to reflect something of his majestic nature, he's given us as humans that same ability to reflect him to the world. So if we're going to if we're going to define what it really means to be made in the image of God, we would say that that we humans have the ability to reflect God's character and to represent him. So we can't see God. Nobody can see God, but but you can look at an amazing sunset and say only God is capable of such majesty. Or you could look at a, at a moonlit, star-filled sky, and you could be in awe of God. Well, in the same way, we can look at each other, and we can realize that the best that God has to offer is in us, in humans. We're made in God's image, and we reflect God's character. We represent his glory, his authority. We're capable of being like God, of acting in a way that represents God and his authority and his creation. We can show the world who God is by the way that we reflect God, uh, showing things like his compassion for the world. Well, that's wonderful news. The one thing that separates God from all of creation, he's chosen to give it to us, to make us in his image. But I'm afraid it's not all good news. Uh, I'm afraid that the way that uh, God created Adam and Eve, perfectly reflecting his image, is not the way the world works today. Things aren't perfect. We're actually going to talk more about that next week. But, but it's no secret to say that humans have been tarnished by sin. And yet it's important to note that even in our sinful state, we still have that image of God in us. It's something so deeply a part of who we are that that even our sin can't completely diminish it. It's tarnished, yes, but it's not gone. It's defaced, but it's not erased. So that even a person who's not a follower of Jesus still has been made in the image of God. That's so important for us to realize that every single person you'll ever meet is a, a reflection of God. They're made in God's image. And realizing that gives us several implications. How do we relate to other people knowing that everyone on earth is made in God's image? This is where this important doctrine meets real life. 
I see several areas where this doctrine has an effect on the way we live because if we have the ability to reflect God, then we need to act in a way that shows the world who God really is. We need to act in the same way that Jesus did, with compassion. And there are several ways that this can play out in the world today. I'm just going to touch on a few of them briefly. First of all, uh, this has a profound effect on the way we view people who are disabled, whether they're physically disabled or mentally disabled. They're image bearers of God. Even people who are incapable of functioning along with the rest of society or a person whose intelligence level is not on par with yours, they're still image bearers. Again, the image of God, it's inherent in all people. It's not dependent on our performance or our abilities. Thank God. So while the world at large is quick to dismiss those who are less useful, people who who take resources from the world without any ability to give back, we, as people who love God and who want to reflect his authority and his glory, must fight for the worth of all people. You know, increasingly, our culture devalues people, especially people who can't contribute to society. But as Christians, we have to fight against that. We have to fight for the worth of all people whom God loves. Uh, A few minutes ago this morning, you saw a video update about our Reverberate project. And I'm particularly excited about this project, not just because my lovely wife is behind it, but because I think it's a great way to put this doctrine into practice, to say to these people who are so often overlooked, we see you and we care about you because God cares about you. That's just one way this, this doctrine of human dignity plays out in our lives. There's a second way it plays out, the issue of racism. Again, all people are made in the image of God, so we should clearly not value one race over another. I feel so privileged to be a part of this church, a church that embraces people of different ethnicities, different races, and, and the wonderful culture of adoption has even broadened our ethnic diversity here at Trinity, which is wonderful. Let's, let's keep modeling for the world what it means to love and value all kinds of people made in God's image. And let's speak out against discrimination based on race. Let's, let's cut it out of our own hearts, out of our own language. Not only does it devalue people, but it dishonors God and the amazing creativity with which he made the world. I mean, God is so creative. Just think of all the different races that exist in the world. It's so amazing to think about. And it's significant that as God describes the ethnic diversity of his future kingdom in the book of Revelation, he says it's made up of every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. God values all kinds of people, and we should too. Another way this doctrine plays out is is how we treat children, recognizing that all people, again, even those who can't yet contribute to society, they all have worth. They all bear the image of God just because of the fact that they're alive, not for what they can do, not for what they can offer us. And seeing children as a gift from God, valuing them, that's an act of spiritual worship. I love the the many, many people here who are so passionately committed to children's ministry, committed to seeing the kids of our church grow into all that God wants them to be. We should celebrate that. And we should perhaps join them. You know, uh, serving in kids' ministry is a great, very practical way to live out this doctrine. On the topic of children, certainly one of the major implications of this doctrine has to do with the sanctity of life. All human life is valuable. That includes the unborn. 
uh, one of the things I read as I prepared for this message, a person made the observation that of all the creatures on earth, only humans can reproduce life that has the image of God in it. Think about that. Not only has God given us his image, he's given us the ability to reproduce that image in the world. So all human life is valuable. And our culture, sadly, is so decidedly against this. Not only do we just recklessly promote violence, but we have countless people promoting murder in the form of choice. But all human life is inherently valuable. Even an unborn child is an image bearer of God. There's a fifth implication of this doctrine. It's simply how we treat women. In our society, our culture is very male-centric, but recognizing that all of us have worth in God's eyes means we should take a good, hard look at how we treat women. We already made the observation as God's creating humans. He specifically mentions male and female. In fact, he does it three different times, emphasizing there's something very important about gender. So I think it's important for us to follow suit, to recognize gender differences, yes, but in doing that, not to devalue one gender or another. I think the church in general over the centuries has not done a good job of valuing women. But our culture, we have more than enough gender confusion. Let's not add to it. I think part of understanding this doctrine means that we, as followers of Christ, we take a right view both on gender differences and on gender equality, honoring Both of them. There's another very important way this doctrine of human dignity plays out in our world, and that's the issue of pornography. Anytime we partake in or allow the exploitation of people through pornography or through films with explicit content, then we're not only reducing the dignity of those people, but we're denying the image of God in them. Not only are you looking at a person who's someone's daughter, who was once someone's precious little girl, but you're looking at the very image of God. And if we allow ourselves to take part in that kind of exploitation, we're violating something that's precious to God. No matter how far removed an individual may be from recognizing their own worth, no matter how they might treat themselves, we can't take any part in that kind of heartless exploitation. As I was preparing this message, I came across an article on this very topic, Pornography and the Image of God, and and he says it better than I might, so I'm going to quote from this pastor and author. He says, there's an inescapable consequence to the fact that human beings bear the image of God. There's nothing God values more than human beings. Bearing God's image is an extraordinary privilege and brings with it extraordinary worth. God says there's nothing in all creation he values more than human beings. And if this is true, there could be nothing more abhorrent to God than the desecration of human beings. There's nothing that displays greater spite toward God than destroying what he considers most significant. As mankind rejects being made in God's image, there necessarily follows a culture of death and desecration. He goes on to say this, When you look at pornography, you're watching the violation of, of what God considers more valuable than anything else he's created. It's a violation of all that person is. For sex is not only skin deep, but it's soul deep. You're not only watching it, but enjoying it. And not only enjoying it, but being titillated by it. God says, I value her above all else because she's made in my image and my likeness. 
You, watch, are being humiliated and violated and desecrated, and all the while you fantasize about doing the same. God says, of all I created, there's nothing with more worth and dignity, and you delight in her desecration and her indignity. God says, I hate it when her body and her soul are stained, and you say, it turns me on. Not only is pornography deadly to your marriage and to your own soul, but it objectifies people who are precious to God. These are just some of the ways that this doctrine speaks directly to very contemporary issues of our day. And we could categorize all these different issues in the same way we started this morning, with compassion. Compassion, that's the key. This fall, we're sending one of our kids off to college, our oldest daughter, and it's a first for us, so a lot of excitement, a lot of emotions associated with that. Some of you can relate, but, but the school she's going to, it's a Christian school, and their motto is pretty interesting to me. Their motto is, live your purpose. That's what they want each student to do, for finding their purpose and their unique calling and going and living it out. Well, in the same way, that's God's desire for each of us. God has given us something of himself. He's given us his image, his divine authority to be able to represent him. And God wants us to go and live that out, live our purpose. Well, how do we do that? The same way that Jesus did, showing compassion. So the Bible describes Jesus as as the full image of God. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. He's the icon of God. And because he's that image, he radiates God's glory, his authority. And when Jesus was finishing his earthly ministry, he celebrated, saying he'd fulfilled that glory by finishing the work that God had gave him. He lived his purpose, and his work was showing compassion. Just as Christ showed compassion to this leper who'd been completely rejected, that same compassion is the key to each of us. That's the guiding principle for treating people, disabled persons, children, the unborn, the undervalued. Each of them should be treated with compassion. The same compassion that Jesus models and the compassion he's shown each and every one of us. He's demonstrated his worth, our worth, in the way that he treats us. Jesus loves us not because of anything we did, not because of how useful we are, the qualities that we demonstrated, not because of the great relationship we had with him. Jesus showed the ultimate compassion just because he loved us. He's chosen to die for us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. You can't work to pay off the debt that he's paid for you. God thought about it. He thought about what in all of creation would be the ultimate way to reflect his glory. What would be the perfect icon? And he decided it was you and me. Even after that image of God in us has been tainted by our sins, God still saw so much value in us that he was willing to send his one and only son into the world to die for us. That should make us feel good. But not just good, groovy, right? Grateful, valued beyond comprehension. And we're made to reflect that same compassion, loving God fully by loving what's most precious to him. 
Compassion is one big way that we value other humans as people who are made in the image of God. And compassion is one big way that we demonstrate what does it mean to love God with all our hearts, to love other people as fellow image bearers. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you made us Uh, to reflect who you are, that you loved us not because of what we had to show you, what we had to offer you, but you loved us just because of you, you in us. And we worship you for the way that you've made us and made all the people. Pray that you would continue to open our eyes and open our hearts to the way that we can reflect you and reflect what's most important to you as we interact with people with love and compassion. We pray all these things in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.